On this episode of the Duke Tip Podcast, we talk about ability grouping, curling, and ask, what is effective teaching? Hi, I'm Tracy. She's Katie. And he's Michael. We're all colleagues at Duke Tip, the talent identification program. It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to challenging gifted students, inspiring them to take pride in their abilities, and fostering their educational, social, and emotional development. That's Duke Tip, and this is the Duke Tip Podcast. We talk about motivating academically talented students, following through on your passions, and learning to love learning. We'll talk to educators, guidance counselors, admissions officers, scientists, authors, artists, entrepreneurs, journalists, and anyone else who might have something to say to the parents and teachers of academically talented students. And to the students themselves. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number six of the Duke Tip Podcast. Katie, Michael, how are you guys doing? I'm rather fabulous today. Thank you. I'm doing well. Thanks, Tracy. Absolutely. I'm very excited to introduce our guest for this episode. Matthew Makel is Duke Tip's Director of Research and the editor of Tip's Research Digest. He recently received the 2017 Early Scholar Award at the annual conference of the National Association for Gifted Children. And he's also published not one, but two edited volumes this year, including one called From Giftedness to Gifted Education, Reflecting Theory in Practice. Matt earned his BA from Duke University, his MA from Cornell University, and his PhD in Educational Psychology from Indiana University. Matt Makel, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. We'll talk to Matt in our second segment about his research and how it fits into what Duke Tip is all about. But first, oh, you know what I learned? All I learned was we know nothing. And I learned it from watching you. Oh, you know what I learned? This is the segment in which we describe the single most fascinating thing we've each learned recently. Michael and Katie, what have you guys learned lately? Well, um, I've continued to read different historical era books. And what I learned this past month was rather depressing. I was reading up of the Knights Templar and the Holy Wars, and it is exactly the same situation as it still is today. Unbelievable. Same cities being mentioned, same themes, same religious conflicts. We've apparently gotten absolutely nowhere in a thousand years. But they did have swords. Which was very, very cool. Yeah, yeah. We've lost that. Michael, what did you learn? Um, Mine's a little more mundane, I guess. Um, I learned that for companies who are actually in charge of being good at logistics and things like that, that the uh, major shipping interests as far as um, uh, online purchasing and things like that don't necessarily have everything as organized as we'd like. Um, I I had a package inbound from a little bit of uh, holiday weekend bargain shopping. Um, it was coming from Petersburg, Virginia, which, uh, for those of you unfamiliar with this exact part of the country, is about two and a half, three hours away from Durham. Um, so rather than coming straight here, the uh, package was routed to Louisville, Kentucky, where it sat, and then eventually kind of drifted towards Greensboro on its way to Durham. Uh, at the time of re- uh, this recording, uh, the arrival of that package is still uh, relatively unknown. So I, I learned that uh, for people who are spending their entire career doing that, uh, sometimes things still get re- uh, misrouted. Do you think that's the, the price you pay for bargain shopping? Um, I like the juxtaposition of price there. That was very yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and perhaps, although I, I don't see that the savings were coming out of the shipping, so <laughs> one, one, one might never know. Uh, so uh, what I learned uh, was actually is actually sort of connected to what we're going to talk about with Matt today and, and very connected to what we do here at Duke Tip. Um, so I went to a conference uh, in Florida at the beginning of November, and uh, the keynote was by a woman named Kathy Davidson, who used to work here at Duke. And she was uh, is really instrumental in sort of interdisciplinary and innovation uh, work here at the university. And she spoke about the history of standardized tests in the United States in, in higher education, how it's really less than 120 years old as we know it. The things that we sort of take for granted or, or just take as given um, is are really not that old. Um, and she talked about Charles, El- Charles Eliot, who was the president of Harvard. Um, in the early uh, 1900s and how he decided that the sort of oral entrance exams um, that talk about philosophy and like in Greek um, were not uh, standardized across the country. And so that was inefficient and also um, not really a great way to, to admit students. So he helped found the college board and 
that's where we got the SAT. Um, he also was a big proponent for electives and student choice, and so that's uh, where electives kind of began at the higher education at the secondary level, which is really interesting um, because it's both standardization, right, um, at the point of entrance, but then also prioritizing student choice once you're in, which is kind of an interesting tension. Uh, so that's what I learned. I thought that was pretty pretty remarkable and connected to what we're talking about, which is pretty great. So Matt, what have you learned lately? Well, I feel bad because I'm not going to be as on message as, as you've led me up to be, uh, <laughs> but I've been learning to curl this month. Oh, how, how Don't you and where? Ice for that? Yeah, where are you? Yeah, uh, I'm sure they will love me plugging Triangle Curling of North Carolina, which is just down the street in RTP, so it's not actually that far from here. And there is uh, indoor, it's a curling, there's four uh, ends, which is the name of what the, like the lane yeah. or the place that you play in curling. Um, so I've been in a, in a learning to curl league uh, that we've met a handful of times and I haven't played a complete game yet, but I've been learning all the technique and form uh, for how to curl. What type of shoes do you wear? Is there a special, uh, is it like bowling shoes? There are special shoes that you can buy to wear, but there's also, I, since I'm only learning to curl just now, I haven't gone through and bought all the, my own gear yet, but you, I just wear sneakers and then there are some pieces of rubber that you put on underneath your, your sneakers. And then when you're actually going to curl, you get uh, a little slider that you put underneath one foot that you stand on with that has Teflon on the bottom to help you kind of slide down the ice. Oh, hey, weren't you Tips Cornhole champion? Weren't you on the championship team? Well, I like that distinction. I was on the championship team, but uh, Matt Sears, my partner, pretty much carried uh, the bulk of the load for for, for our championship, I, I think. And Michael is nodding vigorously. But yes, and so actually I think the, the motion has similarities between cornhole and bowling. Mm -hmm. and Some of the talent bled over to the other, to the other game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I can say I've got any talent yet for curling. Other than that, I enjoy being uh, in 40-degree temperature standing on ice for long periods of time. Yeah. So, so, Matt, I guess you would say in this case the ends do justify the means? Yes. Okay, that's good. Uh, so I didn't. I had no idea that the curling was around in the triangle. So you know, I learned something absolute today. Yeah, bagels I just, curling. I, the I South has changed. I didn't really know that. Stronger um, Canadian contingent than we thought we had. Right. It's not just biscuits hey. anymore. <laughs> really, the, the North Carolina's new motto. Um, so I think we should move on to tell me more. Uh, tell me more is the part of the show where we delve into our guest's area of expertise. You look like you want to tell me something. Tell me something true. I have so much to learn from you. Matt, I was struck by the subtitle of your new book, Reflecting Theory in Practice. So I wanted to hear more about how you conduct your research and how your research feeds into what actually goes on in gifted education programs across the world. It sounds like there's a two-way street. You research what goes on in classrooms, and then your research findings help change what goes on in classrooms. Um, how does that work? Well, our, our hope is that the research findings will have some influence in, in classrooms, just as I'm sure practitioners and teachers have a sincere hope that what they do and say about their classroom experiences will influence what research that, that we do. And that's kind of, it's that connection that led us to have that subtitle of reflecting theory and practice, because we don't want the work that we do as researchers and what happens in the classroom to be two totally separate entities that never talk to each other. And so it's our hope with this book is to help practitioners take some of the ideas that other researchers and theorists um, have developed and learn how to more easily and more appropriately apply them in the classroom and in schools. Most of the research that I'll do, will I'll write up for academic journals and practitioners are not the primary audience. It's other researchers who are the primary audience. So we'll often use a lot of language and texts on methods and some advanced stats that is important to include in the original research, but maybe is going to be of less interest to practitioners. And so we organized the book so that each chapter was written 
with the mindset of a practitioner being the the reader and each chapter we wanted to answer three questions um first what is the conception or idea of giftedness um for the idea because each chapter is a different conception of giftedness so what what is giftedness and talent look like under this conception and then how is it identified or how does it develop and then the second half of the chapter that we really hoped authors would spend a lot of time on is how can a practitioner apply these ideas in mm. school? And so we, we tried to make it very approachable and understandable so that then someone reading it could say, oh, this is really resonating with me. What can I do to apply these ideas in my classroom or my school? Do you think this would be useful to parents as well as teachers and homeschoolers? Like, who do you see as the broadest audience for this book? I think parents could get a lot out of this book just to know about different ideas of what is giftedness and what is talent and the different ways that different people can interpret or conceive of the of these ideas. But how you know how to apply the, these ideas in the classroom may be a little less relevant to them unless they're approaching it perhaps from the idea of I'm going to go talk to my child's teacher. We wanted this to be a one-stop shop for people who maybe don't have a lot of background in giftedness, mm. but now are perhaps in a job where it's their responsibility to help plan and implement gifted programming, they don't necessarily have time to go read 16 different books. Mm -hmm. So we gave them one book with 16 different ideas. And then at the end of each chapter, there are suggestions for further reading, where if you know one or two of the different conceptions really resonated with them, now they've got an initial idea and they know where to go for next steps to learn more about it. If it's that comprehensive, then you probably had to do some myth busting, right? Did you actually address misperceptions about giftedness? And if so, what would you say were the main misperceptions lingering about gifted education or giftedness? Well, one thing that I try to do in the blog that Tracy mentioned, the Tips Research Digest, uh, is to focus less on misperceptions and focus more on what we do know. And so what we asked each authors to focus on was if any research or evaluation has been done on their ideas, what has it shown? What has it found? Mm. And this may sound like a, a subtle distinction, but there's been some research on communicating research findings uh, to the public. And it was actually done initially by some climate scientists who were getting frustrated by their lack of ability to persuade the public on what their findings say. And so then they collaborated with some psychologists and some other scientists to say, well, how can we effectively communicate our results? And there's a huge body of, of research out there that shows it's actually really effective to focus more on the truth or the facts in what you know, rather than kind of repeating what may not be true or what isn't, because people will just remember mm -hmm. um, perhaps the thing that you they heard you say. And so what we're trying to focus on in the book and in our blog is, well, if they're gonna remember what we say, we're only gonna talk about things that we actually want them to remember, which is what the research actually says and not what some misconceptions that people mm -hmm. may have. So connected to um, that work on the blog in particular, maybe it's connected to the to the book, but you know, if you were to summarize, what do we know? What actually do we know about, the, about serving gifted students, the best way to serve gifted students? Well, with, I want to start with a, the quick caveat yes. that it's going to depend on how you conceive of who is gifted and who is talented and what are the goals of gifted education. That if you ask a lot of state policymakers, their goals might be to raise test scores. But if you go talk to the individuals in the schools who are running gifted programs, I think that's going to be pretty rare that their goal with their gifted programs is going to be to raise test scores. Right. It's going to often be more about developing creativity or developing a student's passions for learning or something like that. And yeah. so what's the most effective way of doing those two often very, very different strategies or goals is going to, is going to look different. Yeah. But what we know about effectively maybe challenging gifted kids or what types of programs for gifted kids, the, the two, I think, strongest types of interventions, um, at least strongest in terms of their research support and also in terms of the effect that they can have are academic acceleration and ability grouping, um, which also 
happen to be two interventions that can make some people nervous and uncomfortable and not want to uh, implement them in schools. Could you maybe define those two terms in for the new parents? Oh, sure. Academic acceleration comes in many, many different forms, but it is going through the school or learning environment often at a different pace or at a different uh, time period. So examples of forms of academic acceleration can be things like grade skipping or even subject-specific acceleration, where if you're a fourth grader who's doing really well in math, maybe you're with the fifth or sixth grade students taking math. But it can also be early entrance to kindergarten or early graduation from high school or dual enrollment in college. There's a lot of different forms of academic acceleration. And then ability grouping also comes in a variety of different forms, but that's rather than just having everyone who's 10 years old be in the same group because they happen to be the same age, that you group some students perhaps based on their learning needs. Yeah, I think I'm glad you asked that, Katie, because I think that in my interaction with parents, acceleration only sort of lives as grade skipping. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it has this very narrow definition um, and even sort of a primacy that like that's that's a goal or the goal. Um, so I think it's really helpful to clarify that that's not necessarily the truth, but it can or that's not necessarily the always the right answer. Even, and there's other forms of acceleration that can be considered and recommended, too. Um, and I wonder I don't know. I mean, I guess one thing that I would ask is if that conception of acceleration is that because uh, that's a parent perspective or if that's the schools promoting that idea as acceleration. Maybe schools or educators are not aware of the variety of options to accelerate a student. I don't know. So Matt, I think another thing that for a lot of people would spring to mind when we talk about challenging gifted students and things like that is, uh, and I guess grouping them as well, um, is the, the concept of the honors class versus the regular class. Um, so from what you were just describing, that doesn't sound like it necessarily fits, um, your just delivered definitions of acceleration or, or grouping, but can you talk to us a little bit about, um, kind of the, the honors track versus the college prep track and things like that as we get into the kind of the secondary education I think an honors class could definitely be considered a form of ability grouping. And depending on what they do in the class, it could potentially be acceleration if what's happening in the honors class is perhaps going through a year's worth of curriculum in only one semester. That's a form of what's called curriculum compacting, Mm -hmm. um, which would be considered uh, acceleration because you're just just going through the material uh, faster. Right. One thing I know that gets tricky because you I, you said a word that we try to avoid using, which is track or mm-hmm. tracking, mm-hmm. Uh, because track or tracking often communicates this once you're in this slot, you're mm-hmm. there. Right. And if you don't get in that slot, there's no way to get in there. Mm-hmm. And one thing that we try in the field to do is to be a little more flexible about those things. And again, if the goal or intent is to meet the student's learning needs, then that may change. And so the analogy I'll often give that I first heard from a researcher at Vanderbilt named David Lubinsky, and though I know many other people use it too, is that of shoe shopping. That when you take a 10-year-old to buy shoes, you don't walk into the shoe store and say, I'd like the 10-year-old shoes, please. Mm -hmm. You take the child and you, there's those great little foot mm-hmm. things to measure how big that child's foot is. And right. at 10 years old, could have advanced shoe needs or you know, <laughs> a large foot for a 10-year-old. Right. But then a year later, that child's foot could have not grown at all. Or it could be you know, now below average for a typical 11th grader or it could be, still be very large. And I think that we, we have this sophisticated shoe buying Mm. uh, metric that we don't necessarily even take advantage of when we're determining what our kids are learning. 
Yeah, thank you for that. I think that the concept of that flexibility is not necessarily something that is w- widely uh, appreciated or, or even known. Well, I think it's also it's hard, right? Because how do you take a kid who is in fourth grade who's just gone through fourth grade math and then been perhaps bored? What do you do? Is that kid going to be ready for sixth grade math the next year? Where well, they've missed a lot of content? How do you catch them up? Uh, and if they do go advanced to the sixth grade math, and what if they're not doing six, doing well? Do they need extra help to get caught up, or right. how do you move them back? It, it, it's hard to do mm-hmm. without a very well accepted and implemented program throughout the school right. where staff parents and kids all feel comfortable with that type of movement right that kind of hyper differentiation that does require everyone to be working in concert right well and i wonder too if some of this is um some of what we're talking about is navigating around navigating through sort of i think human maybe tendencies to towards absolutism and like labels right because i think what you know what we're talking about is potentially a student being labeled as um one thing in fourth grade and then this you know we i think we face this with parents sometimes they feel like the label once it's there it's stuck right like it's just hard-coded into that child that child is now gifted forevermore but the types of things that they may be looking for or the types of behaviors that may have earned that label in fourth grade ch- change. And, and that's something we even face, I think, at TIP when students assume that label themselves and then come to a program that is challenging them appropriately and then they feel like maybe is the label now slipping or is this is that not actually who I am um, when they are getting challenged and it's not as easy. And making it look easy was what earned them the gifted label before, right? So I do think there's some there's some sort of human nature aspect that we're fighting against, as well as it being actually logistically difficult to do what you're saying. Yeah, I think one of our biggest challenges here is teaching kids that taking risks and failing is actually incredibly useful and helpful in pushing the boundaries mm. of your abilities. And we give them case histories of inventors and famous minds over and over who have embraced failure as a way to get to a greater ability. But it's really tough to tell a kid that who's forming their identity and comparing themselves to their peers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think you've keyed in, Tracy, on a big issue within the field. And some people and some of the chapters in the book actually talk about this, feel that we'd be better off if we had gifted education without the giftedness label mm. and that sometimes the is, is the label getting in the way of actually providing the services that people are trying to achieve whereas other people have this worry that without the label will there be the ability to get buy-in and justification for the service mm-hmm. And that also, that label giftedness implies that the children who aren't gifted are somehow lesser and are worse off if they too are grouped with their ability. When in fact, isn't it true that children that aren't gifted, if they were in a class of children of similar ability, their educational needs would be better served? That's what in, we, I wrote a, co-wrote a paper last year with saying Steinberg and who and Paula Oshevsky Kobelius, who are both at Northwestern. And we kind of did a review of the reviews of ability grouping. And that's where we looked at uh, who is helped and or harmed by ability grouping. And we did find that it, in general, the research says that if a student is in an environment where they're kind of the, the target audience, the target student, um, that, they, that, that they are helped. Their, their achievement does, does go up because it helps teachers focus their time and attention on the specific learning needs of students in that particular environment. If we group students simply by age, oh, there's a ton of research out there that's shown there's huge variability and what their performance is. And even in something like reading, if you go to the typical fourth grade classroom, there are a lot of kids who read at the fourth grade level. But there's also many kids who are reading at the third and fifth grade level. There's probably going to be one or two kids who are reading at the first or second grade level. And then there's going to be some who are reading at the sixth, seventh, tenth, or eleventh grade level. And to expect a teacher to be able to simultaneously juggle all of those reading needs, 
I think is just not realistic. Um, and some some people may say, "Oh, what well, we group for reading," which I think is you know would 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 help. But reading is so fundamental to so many other mm-hmm. domains. If you're not then grouping for your science lesson, which will involve reading, then the teacher that teacher will still need to juggle some of those mm-hmm. varied uh, reading levels. I mean, I kind of am now. I'm sort of like wondering what the world would look like if we did ability grouping across the board and just thought about it that way. I don't know what, I mean, I think that we would still find that there's a, a an attraction towards labels. So the, the abilities would get the label, you know, but may, but is that not better than maybe just labeling the whole child? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a question for you on behalf of the parents in the audience, and that's um, when is uh, acceleration too much? For example, you've got a child gifted in a multitude of topics. Your research covers social and emotional factors as well as academic. Do you have any advice about, you know, is it better for a child to be challenged in four different subjects when they're in high school in an honors class, or is that too much? How do you know? I think one of the safest answers in all of psychology or education is it depends on the situation. <laughs> and so I'm going to play that 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 answer right here. Is it, and it really does, looking at who, who the child is, what their learning needs are, what type of support they have, what their interests or passions are is going to depend. Um, you raised uh, a potential concern about social emotional needs, which is a very commonly expressed concern. Um, there's a bunch of research out there on what happens to students who are accelerated and are their social emotional needs met? You know, do they fit in if they're the young kid with the rest of the group? And uh, my colleague saying Steenbergen, who who's at Northwestern actually did what's called a meta-analysis on all the research. And that's where you take all of the individual research studies that have been done on this topic and you calculate what does the typical finding show. And her meta-analysis showed that in general, either their social emotional needs are not harmed or they're actually benefited from being um, accelerated. And that's, there's a bunch of caveats there potentially in that, like with Tracy uh, mentioned about grade skipping is that we don't do it very much in the U.S. anymore. And so maybe it's because we have all of these barriers to grade skipping that really it's only the absolute strongest students are ever even given the chance mm. uh, to to be accelerated and that many if, if more students were given that opportunity, maybe they wouldn't be as successful. Uh, that is one perspective, not one I adopt. My actual uh, prediction, if we were to group students more by ability, like you had just mentioned, Tracy, would be that any concern about, oh, well, they won't fit in will actually be alleviated because it's not going to be, oh, I'm the one kid in my school who's being accelerated. It's actually there's four other kids who are my age who are being brought up here, and there's a kid who's even a year younger than me, and then there's two kids who are just a year older than us. And so that type of diversity of grouping, no no student is going to be the sole standout right. in that class. There's going to be a lot right. of different variety uh, uh, in student ages there. So I just don't think there's going to be that concern of, oh, I'm the only one as right. much. Like there is, there is a a whole body of work around appropriate differentiation and how differentiation can work. Um, not everyone's trained in it, but people are all doing it, right? Yeah. And maybe even poorly all what, the time. And it's, but, it's, <laughs> but it's very hard. Yeah. I think yeah. differentiation could be made easier if you take that variability, say in reading or in math performance from 10 years, and if you shrink it down to even one or two years, differentiation is still hard because one year difference in math is essentially the difference of I know algebra and I don't know algebra. And those two those two kids have very different learning needs and you know, if they when they walk in your room tomorrow right. morning. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Matt, once you differentiate who's gifted and you group them together by ability, it still begs the question of 
what teaching techniques work. And I think you've participated in a study or you often cite a study about effective teaching is effective teaching. What does that mean exactly? What was defined as effective teaching? Well, for, for this particular uh, study that I think you're referring to, it was actually a review article on something called learning styles, where there's a l huge body of work out there. And I think it's very commonly implemented in schools in the belief that, you know, some students may have uh, a verbal, they may be verbal learners, or some are visual learners, or some are bodily kinesthetic learners, that there's these different learning styles. And so they reviewed um, this huge body of work to actually show, well, when students who say they're verbal learners are put in a verbal learning environment, do they actually learn more than students who aren't verbal learners, or do they learn more when they're in the verbal environment and not in the verbal uh, environment? And I think this paper reviewed 200 different papers, and they didn't find any cases where the published research showed that being in your preferred learning style actually led to better achievement. And But there has been a lot of research out there that's saying, that, you know, effective teaching is effective teaching, that we have some evidence of here's better ways to teach algebra or here's better ways to teach various different concepts. And that's generally helpful and it doesn't necessarily change based on who the student group is. But again, this is this is not this is not my work. This is just work that I've that I've read mm -hmm. and that I've found to be very persuasive. And we have a blog post about it at www.giftedtoday.org. You're better at plugging than I am. <laughs> yeah, that just rolled off her tongue. Um, so I wanted to shift a little bit and talk about the way that research works here at TIP, because I, I don't know that all of our listeners are aware that we have a research area, that we have a director of research, um, and that our team, and, and particularly people who are working in communicating about um, our work here at TIP, and also the people who are developing curriculum, take that into account as much as possible. I th at least I, th I think I do. I can't speak for everybody. It's it maybe. Um, but uh, how does the research that you conduct, Matt, how does that feed into TIPS educational programs and other researchers? Because I assume that you, you've got this perspective on it and how research gets spread out at TIP that, that maybe I don't. Um, yeah, well, we have three primary kind of buckets of work that we do in the research department here. Uh, our first bucket is conducting that original research. Much of it is uh, working with uh, TIP kids and their families, but other parts of original research can be working with large state databases or things like that, or even um, TIP alums who are now adults looking at their kind of long-term outcomes from who and where they were when they were uh, in TIP to now our oldest alums are about 50 years old, or where are they at kind of personally and professionally and what are their accomplishments and what have they been? Um, a second bucket of research, which we've talked about, is kind of the public translation of a lot of research findings because I view the ultimate consumers of our research and any research related to gifted and talented kids uh, those ultimate consumers are the teachers and parents of gifted and talented students, and they may not necessarily have access to the journal articles, the time to read them, the skill set to wade through some of the statistics. And that's why we have a blog that is freely available to anyone where we try to take relevant research findings and translate them into things that are understandable, but also actionable. Because it's nice to know, oh, here's what this research study found. But if it's not relevant, I don't think readers are going to remember it mm. or know what to do with it. But if we can make it relevant and kind of give them, give readers the, and here's what you should go do, or here's what you can go do with this information, that hopefully it'll be a little more helpful for them. And then it sounds like your question is about the third bucket of work that we do, which is operational support. And that's something where we are here to help other TIP departments with their responsibilities and their duties and that we do a lot of work with the, our talent search area when they're uh, looking and they, when they're getting questions from parents and teachers about 
qualifying tests that TIP accepts or doesn't accept and why do we accept some tests and why do we not accept others that we work with the talent search staff a lot. And um, one thing I know, I believe I worked with you, Tracy, when you first started here, which was your responsibility for developing and amending evaluations for your programs. Yeah. We're yep. here to help um, all the program owners uh, work through their evaluation data and information as well. Yeah, survey data um, is, is a huge part of what programs uh, look at when we're seeking to improve year over year. And in particular, where I work in online programs, we have so much access to student activity and behavior data because our learning management systems track a lot of student behaviors. That's uh, an area that really drives a lot of our work because we want to be able to look, we, we, we have the ability and so we should uh, be able to go back and look at student activity. So, I mean, I think that's something that I don't know if parents are aware. Um, I, you know, you get a survey at the end of so many sort of consumer experiences. I don't know if our families are aware that we actually do use it. We do look at it um, and we try and make the, those tools useful. So I think that's um, that might be a good place to, to sort of unpack a little bit um, is, is how program data uh, or how, pro how surveys and evaluations have evolved in your time here at TIP in terms of how they're used, how they're created, how they're um, revised, you know, every year. Yeah, well, at TIP right now, most of the surveys and the evaluation are kind of owned by the program owners and we're here to help. And so when when I go and talk to program owners, one, the first thing that I always ask is, well, what are you hoping to get out, out of this? And I know one piece of advice that I always give or ask about uh, program owners is about specific questions that they ask is, are you going to do anything with this information? Is are the answers that we get from these evaluations going to have any impact on what TIP actually does? And if the answer is no, then my question to them is, why are we asking it? Mm. And I've not ever looked but at, the, at this, but the longer the surveys, we, at TIP, we, we want to know a lot of information, <laughs> uh, which can be great, but if you're asking questions that are going to take parents or the students 50 minutes to answer. I'm sure all of us, we get surveys too. You get worn out and you give up and it's like, I'm not going to do this. But if you ask three questions that are going to take two minutes, you're just going to get a lot more people to answer those. So you're, it's, it's a trade-off of you could get a lot of information from a small handful of people, or you could get a little bit of information from a lot more people. And that's going to really depend on what you're trying to to get out of the evaluation. and I think one of the biggest areas where Matt and the research department work comes in with the communications and marketing area, where we try to make sure that everything we put in front of parents and teachers, even if it's just a Facebook post, are consistent with the research findings. So Matt's really active with us, and we've tried to sort of combine and make it easy to understand at giftedtoday.org, not only do we have the Research Digest, but we have Talent Talk, which sort of examines a lot of the news and noise around giftedness and whether it's actually consistent with the research or our experience. Um, and also in the advocacy arena, and we've uh, built an area on our website called tip.duke.edu slash just the facts. And that's 12 fact sheets about basic things we know about giftedness and gifted education, along with advice on how to advocate for your child within the school system. And I think that's going to be very useful to many parents listening. And Matt was absolutely integral in creating those things. So everything is based on research and proven evidence. Well, you, you could be a, my marketing director. Oh, yes. Oh, wait, you are our yeah, marketing I director. I live to serve you, Matt. Turns out. <laughs> that's what we've hired Katie to do. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the Just a Fact Sheets in case some you know people haven't seen those because they're, they're really cleverly designed. Can you talk a little bit uh, and maybe connect back to what you were saying about the, the uh, research about communicating to the public and science that you were talking about earlier with the climate change scientists? So I don't know if this was intentional or not, but those two things are actually explicitly connected. Yes, that, I knew that. Oh, okay, good. I did okay, know good. that. Um, because these these kind of one-page handouts that we want to be understandable and actionable to parents and practitioners, the design is based on the research that 
evolved from the climate scientists working and collaborating with some of the persuasion psychologists. And they wrote something called the, the debunking handbook and where they developed this strategy for how to effectively maybe debunk some misinformation um, that has a really nice kind of formula or recipe for effectively communicating research findings, which it's in, it sounds kind of simple when you see it, like have your headline be the kind of big take-home message of what the research actually says. And I know as an author sometimes, and if you read newspaper headlines, often you, they, you want it to end up being like clever or <laughs> asking a question that you know is provocative and gets people to click on things. But the vast majority of your readers are only going to read the headline. They won't click on it or they won't really go in there. So if you know they're only going to see one thing, which is the headline, why not make that headline the one big takeaway that you want people to have because your your audience is going to be so much bigger if you if you do that. And I guess they found that it's, that's an effective way of actually successfully communicating this is what the research actually shows. Well, I just love that we have we're using research to figure out how to communicate our research. Yeah. Like that's how deep the rabbit hole goes. Yeah. And it, what it means in practicality <laughs> is we have these fact sheets on important topics and giftedness that if you give to a school board member or a state legislature or a principal, they're designed so that in the maximum amount of instances, that person will actually read and understand the main points we want them to take away. There's a nice graphic. There's a fact provided. It doesn't veer off into too much emotional or marketing language. It's really just psychologically key toward helping people understand and get our main point. And if they work, they work really well, I think. Well, good. And if they are effective at working, maybe we can get them to do more than just read one page. We can get them to read a book or two about it as well. Was there an example of the just the facts, like one of the sheets that comes to uh, mind? Above level testing springs to my mind where um, we were attempting to explain to parents and schools why above level testing is a powerful tool for diagnosing the, the child's abilities. And the chart on that was really great. It shows three children that have all scored 99% on their grade level. So they seem like they're the same level of ability. The second chart showed that if you gave them above level test, those three same students were all over the map in terms of their individual ability, how far they went in math, how far they went in education. And that visually conveyed the uniqueness and the need for above level testing. So I just, I just want to give a shout out to Catherine Bergman, our graphic designer here who helped design that visual. Yeah, I think that makes, makes a big difference. I mean, I think that we, um, it's helpful for me as a staff member who can be in conversation with parents to have access to those because I parents ask really good, hard questions and you don't want to be the person who who doesn't have the right answer or gives misinformation. It just seems, it's like a recipe for disaster. It's not good for, for them. It's not good for, it doesn't feel good um, for us. So I think it's, it's helpful to have something that we can even just have access to really easily. Well, and if you, the people in this room or you, the listener, uh, have any of those hard questions where you feel like you have, you don't have the right answer or a good enough answer that you want, please let us know because we're always looking to create new one-page handouts that helps answer those hard questions. And unless I hear from all of you on what those next handouts should be, I just do the ones that I think would be helpful, um, which may or may not be on, on target for answering some of those hard questions. We should do like a social media post of like, what's the question that you have about giftedness? Yeah, just you never that. get mm -hmm. the the best answer. You never get the answer that you that feels clear enough, that feels research based, you know, yeah. or you feel like you get foo foo answers. Yeah. yeah, we could we could do that. The other thing on a different level, if you go to our website, there's a contact us section, and in it, you can give us general feedback, like what we should be looking into in terms. But you can also ask some of our specialists on staff specific questions about your child. You'll find that information on the contact us page and we'll get back to you if you're a tip participant. Yeah. And, and if you're a teacher or administrator of a gifted program, are there questions that you get that you don't love the answer that you typically give? You want to be able to give a better answer. Let us know and we may be able to help. Although there, there's also a good chance that we just don't know a lot about some of these answers yet because our field in terms of research actually is pretty small. It's a pretty tight knit 
community and there's only so many uh, people who are collecting new data and only so many opportunities to be able to collect data that there's, I think, a lot that we don't know yet. And I think we in the field need to be okay and comfortable saying that. And now when it comes down to actually identifying and serving, it's not that we can't, we can't just call time out and say, oh, well, we're not going to do anything until we know, you know the perfect answer. <laughs> just hang on for 25 years or something. But we have the best that we know, but we may not necessarily be as well as we want as, or as strong as we want it to be. I think that's good philosophy for research in general, right? Like, I hope, I hope that, I hope that other people in other research fields feel the same way as Matt. Um, well, Matt, thanks for telling us more about you and uh, what you do and uh, what you do here at TIP. I think we can move on to our last segment, <laughs> which we call Failure is Instructive. Failure is growth. Failure is learning. Failure is one option. In this segment, we remember that it's okay to fail. As the philosopher John Dewey wrote, failure is not mere failure, it is instructive. The person who really thinks learns quite as much from his failures as from his successes. Michael, Katie, what have you learned from your failures this month? Well, I learned that fish got to swim, birds got to fly, and dogs got to dig in your yard, and there's really not a whole lot you can do about it. For about three weeks, I failed every day in keeping our new 100-pound puppy, Willow, from digging in the yard. The problem being, it's not my yard. I'm renting the house. So every day she digs. Every day I start the morning going out in my pajamas with a shovel. And I finally resorted to getting an, uh, a bullhorn, an electronic bullhorn. And I stand at the window and shout through the bullhorn, stop digging, stop digging. And I think my neighbors think I'm out of my mind. <laughs> And so I finally realized the only way that I would stop failing at this was to buy my own place and give that dog a yard where she can dig. And that's what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> that's dedication. <laughs> 100-pound dog, though. I mean. And she's just so sweet. Who, I mean, she's digging for her own very well-founded reasons. She needs to <laughs> bury that twig. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, how about you? Um, well, uh, for those of you who've been loyal listeners, uh, uh, we're, we're going to return to the uh, saga of the smoker. Um, uh, after having learned that it's important to not try to carry a water pan full of very, very hot liquid uh, by yourself, um, uh, I went ahead and depended on this being the fifth time ever smoking uh, to feed um, my extended family who came to visit for uh, Thanksgiving just recently. Um, so good news, uh, all food did reach edible temperature. So spoiler alert there. Um, but uh, my brother-in-law and I were actually uh, minding the smoker and minding the fire and uh, the temperature started dropping re relatively precipitously. Um, it was a little cool uh, here in North Carolina um, for Thanksgiving. Um, so we went ahead and got all of our preparations made. We lit extra coals. We had extra wood ready to go and everything like that. And in uh, opening the smoker, to uh, get those extra coals in. Uh, it turned out that we had given the smoker all the oxygen it needed to just make a really strong comeback. So uh, the failure was uh, burning more fuel than we needed to. Um, but uh, knowing now that, uh, you know, if you just feed the fire a little bit more oxygen, it, it kind of kicks back up. So we had a very nice uh, extra fire pit going for a little while so we could stand outside and be uh, all nice and cozy warm on, on Thanksgiving. So that, that worked out well. How was the turkey? Uh, the turkey and the pork shoulder, because we are here in North Carolina, I made sure to do both, uh, turned out just fine. So a, another accidental success from, from the Delaney family smoker. Nice. Uh, somebody I was talking to the other day uh, about their Thanksgiving uh, said that they were, I said, oh, did you, did you cook? Do you have a lot going on? And they're like, oh, not so much. But they said, we had turkey and some ribs and then we had some pork and then we had some chicken. And I was like, that is the South for you. Mm -hmm. Like. It's it's just you know not yeah. it's not a holiday list. You have multiple All you meats. were missing was the squirrel. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Is Willow on that for us? That was not runs weeks too. Yeah, that was not <laughs> mentioned. Um, so my failure uh, is also about Thanksgiving. I uh, was absolutely certain that I had failed at making my mother's deviled egg recipe, which is sort of famous in my family. Um, and I was just I was like, this is horrible, but I don't have time to remake it. And then I brought it to a friend's giving uh, with about fifteen people, and it, they were destroyed in like thirty minutes. So what I what I understand about that is that. Uh, 
cooking well first of all it's it's always fraught i think cooking family recipes mm. right because you're you're remembering as you're making it how it tasted to you and how and how epic it is and it has a sort of esteem in the family because it's passed down um and that is not a the first of all that's not a healthy way to evaluate your own food because it, it will never live up to your memory of that food um and also when other people make food it always tastes better than when you make it so that's that's something that I needed to understand, um, and it was it was good for me to realize that I judge myself and hold my food to a much higher standard than is necessary, particularly for Friendsgiving, because Thanksgiving is when people are just happy that other people are making them food, honestly, mm -hmm. um, and that is not an effective way for me to carry about my day um, when I'm bringing food to a big potluck. So that's what I learned. Hmm. Matt, do you ever fail? Have you got a story to share? Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> and yes, that. Um, while planning a session for a conference recently, a colleague and I thought it would be best to try to minimize the number of people who spoke because transitions can just kind of be awkward and then some people can go long and then give short shrift to whoever's talking at the end. And some of us had already given a talk on this topic before. So we thought, oh, it would be just be easier. We're doing a favor to um, our colleagues by not asking them, by asking them not to speak. And um our colleagues disagreed, which is good, um, and everyone ended up talking and participating in the end of the session, ended up being a kind of impromptu panel discussion, um, which went, I think went really well, which is great um, because my colleagues are really smart and effective speakers. And so the big lesson for me, at least, um, which I seem to be relearning a lot, is that A, try to work as much as possible with people who are smarter than you. And B, don't leave your stars on the bench. If you have people who are really good at something, let them do that and try to make help them do that as, as often as possible. Because if they're your colleagues and co-authors, you're going to benefit from that. But then I also think the audience um, in the session benefited from that as well. I think there's something in there too about scholars just really wanting to be able to share their own work like they have it like presenting for other people or presenting one's work is 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 so satisfying so maybe there's something in there about about just sort of uh, as opposed to representing right which is also a different type of labor for you so maybe there's something in there about letting people speak their part even if it's a small amount or a large amount, yeah. Yeah, listeners probably don't realize that we've been in this room for 11 hours just like <laughs> listening to me talk about, oh, and there's this project and there's this research finding. There are, I think There are no small parts, just small edits of this podcast. Yes, exactly. They don't know. They have no idea. Um, we've been in here since Thanksgiving. So that brings us to the end of this episode of the Duke Tip Podcast. Matt Magel, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Happy to be here. Could you tell us again uh, where to find your book? Uh, From Giftedness to Gifted Education, Reflecting Theory and Practice, I believe is available online at most places where you would buy books, but I would not expect to be able to find it in your local bookstore. Okay. Though, if anyone does find it there, please let me know. That would be wonderful. Yeah, that would be great. A uh, local plug, especially in Durham. Um, so thank you, everyone, Katie and Michael. And to our listeners out there, if you have an O, you know what I learned, you'd like to share, or any failure is instructive to send in, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email to podcast at tip.duke.edu, or leave us a voicemail at 919-668-9127. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes. Visit tip.duke.edu to learn all about Duke Tips programs and how you can get involved. Bye-bye.